0: Keep it a go. The podcast platform of the Finaglerist by Leopold Lambert. Today, economization of life, part two. Chemical infrastructures with Michelle Murphy. Beginning of part two. I wanted to talk about the other books that you wrote, that's called the the sick, the sick building syndrome, um, and uh, and maybe acknowledge the fact that um, so far we've been talking talking of biopolitics and uh, and and um, and uh, what it takes as a subject as something that we would uh, commonly say inside the body i mean in a mm-hmm. kind of very uh, Euclidean uh, Euclidean uh, uh, way of of reading things as like there's an outside the body and mm-hmm. there's an inside the body so here we're going to take we're going to take an approach that's a little bit more uh topological to use the words that you affectionate um and and try to see how this how life is not just something in the inside but it's it's much more intricate in in terms of uh how things uh uh Uh, penetrates with with the material assemblage that the body is, Mm -hmm. and in particular, uh, we were talking about atmospheres before, so in particular, uh, what we breathe, for example, and and, uh, maybe talking about uh, something that you call chemical infrastructures uh, in another paper that's called uh, Life Unlimited, Feminism, Bioscience, and Race.
1: Oh, that's the the collections called that. Oh, I'm sorry. It's called Distributed Reproduction in Chemical Infrastructures. Uh, Yeah,
0: I'm sorry. That will be well put in in the bibliography. Uh, And maybe just to quote you on on the definition of chemical infrastructure, uh, and here I quote again, uh, by chemical infrastructures, I mean the spatial and temporal distribution of industrially produced chemicals as they are produced and consumed, and as they become mobile in the atmosphere, settle into landscape landscape, sorry, travel in waterways, leach from communities are regulated or not by states, monitored by experts, engineered by industries, absorbed by bodies, metabolized physiologically, and as they, as they bioaccumulate in food changes, break down over time or persist. So I think we're very much in this notion of atmosphere uh obviously not not simply as an aerial way as we usually understand so in terms of atmosphere, but really uh, the ensemble of of environing matter that interacts with what we call our body and and that uh, uh, has uh incidence on what we call life and uh, uh, simultaneously in 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 what we would call toxicity and, and and non-toxicity. But um so could you maybe tell us more about how this notion of of uh, environing matter of atmospheres uh, uh, have a tremendous impact into this uh, biopolitical uh, uh, realms.
1: Mm-hmm. I like I, I like the phrase environing matter. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to to put it. Um, yeah, so it relates to um Again, going back to Haraway and that question of why should our bodies end at our skin? Mm. Um, you know, we could also think about um, all the work right now asking us to think about ourselves as living in the Anthropocene mm. and living in the moment of in which the substance of all living things is chemically or molecularly altered by the accumulated force of human activity Um, and so uh, this line of my work is really interested in what we could call chemical politics and um, kind of trying to challenge or provide other kind of narratives or other ways of thinking about the ubiquity of chemical exposure um, as part of the built world Um, so the kind of ways that we have in toxicology to apprehend chemical exposures is very narrow. So toxicology really gives us tools to look at one chemical at, the t- at a time and how that chemical predictive- predictably and regularly alters particular bodies, right? bodies of let's say humans or mice or fish, right? So usually it's species specific. And how they and how then the that regular predictable effect is um, modulated by dose. So that's what kind of toxicology uh, does. You know, that is a kind of thing, um, you know, to- that version of toxicology was invented in the early 20th century. It's basically, like putting a mouse or a bunch of mice in a box and putting different amounts of a chemical in it, mm-hmm. like lead, and then looking for a predictable response in the mouse body that happens at different levels of lead. And it's that really, it's like a really archaic science, Mm -hmm. right? Its it's forms of investigation are very constrained, and they're very constrained because um, there's incredible pressure by industry to keep the terms of toxicology Mm -hmm. constrained. Um, And so we have these really narrow ways that are acceptable um, to regulate or to study um, normatively uh, the world of chemicals that we live in mm-hmm. and um so this work on chemical infrastructures is is saying well actually chemical flows chemical exposures even though they're incredibly variant like chemicals might we- uh, wink out of existence they have all sorts of different half-lives and different uh, processes of breakdown um they're still infrastructurally part of our world and we can actually study those chemical infrastructures and tell stories about them and, and kind of look at how uh, life is made possible or thwarted um, or injured or violated in those chemical infrastructures that we live
0: in. Maybe before even starting really addressing the notion of to- toxicopolitics uh, mm-hmm. we, we can even look at toxicity in a, in a completely non- Intentional, intentional way to begin with, and um, when we talk about that, it immediately makes me think of their, uh Spinoza's letters to Blainberg and how he explains how uh, uh, if if God tells to Adam, uh, which is obviously not to say that uh, Spinoza was a creationist, but uh, when when God says to Adam, "Don't eat this apple," what Spinoza says is that it doesn't mean the apple is evil; it means the apple is bad. You you will you will. You will have uh, an indigestion or something. You and 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 so I mean, uh, Deleuze helps us to to read this text in particular in, in saying in how what it means is the parts, the material parts of the apples, do not compose well with the material parts of Adam's body, and that's this encounter that we call toxicity, which is mm. the, the, the non the non uh, 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 it's a, it's a relationship between two bodies that is detrimental to both, mm-hmm. and and so that being said, our bodies are similar are uh, continuously encountering mat- material uh, 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 around us, so, so surrounding matter, and that's a that's a not yet political thing. Now, uh, because of what you were describing as as uh, now all matter being under the the influence at one point or another or continuously uh to to their to their um, uh to their human uh, manufacturing of of uh, and agencing of of matter uh there cannot be any mat- they, at least no longer there cannot be any longer any material encounter that uh, our body does uh and our body is uh, that is not highly political so that's I think that's where that's where we we can start talking mm-hmm. about uh, about that and I, I think uh, the very very first sentences of of, of their of their uh, uh, sick building syndrome your book are 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 particularly great for that because it's extremely uh, descriptive and uh, and I'm sorry I don't have them here but could, could you maybe tell us about it
1: yeah so the, I mean the which are talking about you know this encounter is exactly what I was trying to explore in this book on sick building syndrome, which is I could say the kind of encounter between bodies and buildings in which they materialize one another, um, and uh, and in particular sick with why sick building syndrome was uh, a good place to think about this is that sick you know sick building syndrome was a, you know really a struggle um, by workers to say that um, there are low-level chemical exposures that happen ubiquitously, that there are, but even more than that, there are impingements to the body that happen chronically, ubiquitously, that are incredibly hard to discern, that are very wily and unpredictable and sometimes very specific to one body as opposed to predictable in all bodies. Mm And how do you apprehend this encounter, then, between built space um, and bodies? And so, you know, was really interested, then, in the struggles of workers, often to organize into legibility, um, the effect of their workplaces on their bodies, at the same time that you had um, industry really interested in... Um, having very narrow understandings about the effects of buildings on bodies um, and uh, and so I uh, trying to understand that relation my, my case study for that was um, the EPA headquarters so the EPA headquarters the uh, Environmental Protection agency of the US uh, in the 19, when Reagan was elected in the 1970s you know it was this kind of like environmentalist agency then Reagan gets elected and basically makes it impossible to regulate uh, anything puts a new administration in that's like you know tries to prevent all the work going on there and the scientists unionize at the EPA to protest against the new conditions for doing environmental science under Reagan but when they unionize they end up spending the majority of their time uh, worrying about whether the EPA itself was a toxic exposure was a sick building was a source of chemical exposure for the workers there. So it's kind of a strange situation where you have environmental scientists thwarted by the state in studying the actual, you know, the acute forms of chemical violence happening nationally, instead putting all this attention to the kind of, the, the micro exposures happening into their own uh, headquarter workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of the case study I, I, I look at. Um, and in that work, and kind of one of the things that's at stake is it's this moment also when tobacco smoke is being regulated, and um, not only we know well about how tobacco companies produce doubt about the relation between tobacco and cancer, um, but what I looked at in was the,
0: in the U.S.
1: in the but uh, I mean all around the world yeah. they did they they tried to create that doubt uh, in the in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and. But, you know, this was a moment of the master's agreement where they were doing a settlement in the, in the U.S. And, um, uh, about the, that hiding of evidence um, about the effects of um, smoking on cancer. and um, But they also were investing tons of money into the study of indoor air pollution. And they were really interested in... Prom- they were actually supporting these union efforts. And they were interested in... Um, fostering uh, claims and work that showed that um, chemical exposures were ubiquitous. Because if you said chemical exposures were ubiquitous in places, then how could you pinpoint tobacco mm. as you know, one thing that caused the problem when there's so many chemicals? So you have this interesting thing where industry is working against its very own logics, but what is this chemical atmosphere that, that bodies are within? Um, so, uh, yeah, so this kind of question about how do bodies and buildings materialize one, one another and how do um, our practices for bringing into legibility that encounter between bodies and buildings also produce what we call domains of imperceptibility, things that are um, incredibly Undecidable or difficult to discern and it's in this place where how can you tell if it was this chemical or that chemical after the fact You know when you get your cancer 20 years later. It's Mm -hmm. that incredible place of uncertainty and undecidability um, That is kind of constitutive in many ways of our body's relation to the built environment Mm -hmm. And so that was another kind of thing I was trying to figure out which is it's not just that there is a better, you know, a kind of perfected science that would get at this kind of chemical atmosphere better. But in fact, the atmosphere that materializes us is full of undecidabilities and uncertainties. And so our kind of avenues of politicization of that atmosphere are shaped by the fact that it is incredibly undecidable.
0: Uh. Uh, it's it's funny because usually I try to look at the most extreme and then goes to the more subtle because the subtle is usually are uh, even more telling than the extreme. But in that <laughs> case, we're going to do the opposite and and go back to uh, what we were talking about uh, bef- when we were preparing this uh, this conversation, uh, uh, which is uh, the work of Peter Sloterdijk uh, about atmospheres and mm-hmm. in particular in a book uh, called uh, Terror from the Air and. Um, uh so he he talks about how uh um, the the way the the german army during the first world war uh introducing uh toxic gas as a as a weapon in their in their trench war uh was uh, the the beginning of a of a of a paradigm uh, of of almost a, a sort of ontological paradigm of, of no longer no longer uh just being, but being what he called being in the in the breathable, mm-hmm. and uh, still haven't managed to find the the, the German neologism for that. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to find it soon. <laughs> the the original uh, concept uh, and how German is able to to construct words like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, in English, it's a, the being in the breathable, and so describing how um, this method of uh, of uh, war on the one hand is uh, is particularly. Uh, 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 um, proper to uh, asymmetrical conflict but uh, but how how all this is actually even more telling for uh, uh, i mean things we're talking about right now, which is much more domestic situation so to speak um, but to some degree i 'm thinking that the things that links that links their, that links their uh, the hyper-extreme with, with this more domestic uh, uh, thing is, uh, is almost uh, the, the terrorist attack of 9-11 because you had obviously the very spectacular uh, uh, attacks that we've, we've all seen and we, we all remember well, but we still have uh, uh, there's still uh, in, in New York uh, a lot of people who are, who are who now are sick from having breathed the their debris and the their, uh, their, I don't know if it was asbestos asbestos was well. one of the things yeah I mean I mean the, the various uh, architectural material that in their uh, pulverization into the air uh, affected the body the, the being in the breathable so somehow we could almost see those attacks as a being uh, 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 bi paradigmatic uh, for for this kind of thing I don't know mm-hmm. yeah,
1: um, yeah. And, and so I mean, This question of the chemical infrastructures, Um, so in that case, uh, we could say, oh, is uh, those chemical exposures or those material exposures that then led to lung cancers, et cetera, um, by people who were near the building who worked in rescuing the building, is that like a second order consequence, kind of second order consequence kind of violence after uh, an unintended further violence? But I think that there's something actually infrastructural about that kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. We've built the possibility of that kind of debris into our built environment. Our built environment is um, constantly in relations of decay. Um, And the exposures that have become quotidian part of our atmosphere are often latent. They can be exposures, they can be chemicals that were released decades ago that sit in a corner Mm -hmm. and then get disturbed or get buried in sediment and then get reanimated, right? Or they can be chemicals that were in the soil and were not particularly toxic but as they break down become more toxic, right? And so this is, I think, actually infrastructural to the chemical world that we've built. These kind of what we would call undecidabilities and these latencies are um, built into the chemical world rather than our kind of acute forms of um, violence associated with, let's say, a violent war. You mm-hmm. know, act like the you know exploding uh, the twin towers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of you know, the Rust Belt and all these abandoned buildings. Um, is part of the decay of housing. It's part of FEMA trailers that were distributed after Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's part of the global trade and toxic waste. Uh, and, but there are, I think, regularities to this ubiquity. And here I would turn more to something like um, Rob Nixon's work on slow violence and thinking about forms of uh, dissipated violence or latent violence. Violence for sometimes who the perpetrators are, you know, no longer present, mm-hmm. right? That factory's long gone. And we're still, you know, um, trading P- PCBs with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I do see what you're saying about the, 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 the 9-11 attacks. But I also think that there's something important to say about the chronicness of these kind of atmospheric mm-hmm. um, distributions of injury of I would say latent violence um, that are just more every day they're more quotidian. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and and to, maybe to re- insist to the almost to the risk of being uh, of appearing obsessional, but uh, uh, going going back to this very simple example, Spinozist example of mm-hmm. of, the, of the apple is like. What I was saying is that it's not that the apple is evil; it's the apple is bad, and meaning we're not talking about a sort of moral system here. We're not saying there are things that are essentially toxic. We are saying there are things that are toxic to uh, living beings or 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 human beings. And I'm saying that I'm saying that with the idea that um, we should organize uh, something like the 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 ecological struggle within this understanding and not with some kind of slogan such as save the planet save the planet because the planet doesn't need to be saved the planet is doing alright it's uh, what's what needs what needs to be struggled for is is uh, precisely the things that are being affected by by this uh, pollution or toxicity or however we're calling it which are uh, which are living beings to, to begin with but um I, I almost feel there's a lack of understanding of this kind of thing within the, the ecological struggle. I mean, depends where we are, obviously. Well,
1: yeah, um, it's interesting that, that you said a couple of thoughts there. One, we could go back to Terra to from the Air and the Dyke book and think about, okay, yes, the book opens with the example of gas attacks in the early 20th century, but, um, you know, I think there's this other interesting larger claim um, that's also epistemological, So that the 20th century becomes this era of trying to understand the relations that contain us, Mm -hmm. right? And these relations can be cultural relations, right? They can be economic relations. They could be ecological relations that we've kind of populated the world with all sorts of relational aggregate figurations of life, Mm -hmm. ecology, Economy, culture, sociality—you know—and we come up with new ways all the time of trying to like uh, intervene in the in this uh, you know ontology of the relational figures that we that we live through, um, and so ecology is is an important one. So with the techno science salon, um, not this year but the year before, we spent the whole year thinking about the figure of ecology as a relational figure. Mm-hmm. As a relational figure, it's um, in in ecological science. It's very much um, you know closed con- you know closed container systems theory, a kind of cybernetic flow kind of way of you know thinking about ecology. Um, and how can we then even reimagine? Like, why do we think we know what ecology is? Again, going to that same question about reproduction. You know, what are the relations that we want to kind of uh, materialize or politicize, right, that make up the ecological, mm-hmm. right? And so it's in this spirit, I think, that I'm trying to think of chemical infrastructures. And it's really the spirit of the question of, like, how do we do our relations? So it goes back to your story about the apple. Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how does the apple compose us? You know, how do our relations compose us? And then how do we want to do our relations, right, is the other side to that story.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, I'm very glad that we got to speak about everything that I, <laughs> that I originally wanted. Uh, the listeners are not aware of that, but uh, I do not see the time where I am right now. So I know we, we've been way longer than oh, any, have any other podcast. But, oh, my gosh, I'm but, sorry. But, no, don't be sorry. This is, this is great. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what I wanted. Maybe I, I would separate it, it into in two, two parts. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Michelle. And uh, and uh, I will... Uh, I'm sure uh, won't be the only one to very much look forward to the next work of the techno salon and uh, all these other works you're organizing. Well,
1: thank you, Leopold, for interviewing me and uh, giving me so much time to discuss these yeah. things. So thank I you,
0: thank it. you for your time. <laughs> Thanks.